Well, good morning. Welcome to the worship of our great God here at Redeemer OPC. A few announcements as we get started. Uh, first, following the morning service, the women's prayer team will be in the cry room uh, to pray with any women who would like to, to be prayed with. Uh, these prayers are, are confidential, so if there's something that's pressing on your heart, we would in- encourage you. It's, it's just this room right out here to the left outside of the sanctuary. Tonight, following the evening service, there will be a mission visit with Reach the Forgotten uh, and Sarah Heaton. Uh, she'll give a brief update on the ministry, so please be sure to stick around for that and hear a little bit more about what's been going on uh, with this, this ministry that we support. Wednesday night, we will be having our Thanksgiving Eve service at 6.30 p.m., and we'd encourage you to invite your friends and your family, your neighbors, uh, for a wonderful time of worship and th- thanksgiving to God for all that he's done over this past year. Uh, so there will be nursery for that as well. So that should be uh, a, a great time to gather as our church family uh, and sing praise to our God. And then please note a few other upcoming activities for uh, the middle school girls and the men's breakfast. Uh, but it's important to highlight that the session has called a congregational meeting following the morning service on December 3rd. Uh, The details of this are pretty simple, Uh, a part of the process of me uh, transitioning into a new call is that you as the congregation have to release me. So some of you have asked, how do we keep you here? This would be the time. Uh, I'm asking be merciful to me, but uh, it should be a pretty brief meeting. Uh, So if you can plan on sticking around uh, for a couple minutes after the morning service on the 3rd, uh, please, please be here for that. Uh, those are all my announcements. Let's take a moment now and prepare to worship our God. Our call to worship this morning reminds us that as ordinary and as common as this gathering might look, at least at at first glance, uh, this could be uh, a room filled with people at at almost uh, any number of other events, Uh, our call to worship reminds us that something special, something supernatural is going on this morning as we gather to worship our God. So Revelation 5, then I looked And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might 
and honor and glory and blessing. We join with the host of heaven this morning in declaring the greatness of the Lamb. And so let's stand and sing to him with By the Sea of Crystal. Let's go to him in prayer. God Almighty, indeed, who shall not extol you and give you the praise which you are so very deserving of? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You have redeemed a people for yourself that we might bow down and offer ourselves to you in worship. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in us. Create in us that which is pleasing and beautiful in your sight. That we might delight in you and you in us, both now and forever. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a taste of, of that heavenly communion that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We say these things, we pray them trusting in his blood. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to praise with there is a higher throne.
You may be seated. Our scripture, unit, uh, scripture reading in unison confession of faith comes from Ephesians 4, verse 28. And we'll be doing that as a way of reflecting on uh, what is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment. And so together we'll read uh, from Ephesians 4, and then I'll read from the larger catechism, uh, question 142. So let's say together. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment are theft, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, injustice, and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unlawful callings, inordinate prizing and distracting cares in getting worldly goods, withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, wasteful gaming, defrauding ourselves of the comfort of that estate which God has given us. Now you may have a few things that stick out here for you about uh, what we typically think of with the commandment against stealing. Obviously it's about not taking from other people things that belong to them, uh, but it's also failing to return those things which maybe you borrow, uh, things that, that someone has lent to you and, and they could really use but you have in your possession. It means failing to provide restitution uh, for uh, damage that you might have caused to their property. It can be any number of those kinds of things. But the, the last phrase, I think in particular, the Lord providentially puts before us as we approach uh, that, that great holiday. No, not Thanksgiving, but Black Friday. Defrauding ourselves of the comfort of that estate which God has given us. This commandment speaks to the, the desire and, and the, the spending of our money on things that we do not need. To a point even where we might uh, rob ourselves of our livelihood. Uh, we tend to think of our money as our, as our own. I earned it. I can spend it on what I want rather than viewing ourselves as stewards entrusted with the funds that we have that they might be used to preserve our lives, the life of our family, and, and might be used for the benefit of other people. Instead, we, we waste our money on things that we do not need, things that make us feel good, or, or things that, that make other people think that we are um, more respectable uh, than we actually are. So as we come to the Lord and confess our sins to Him, I would encourage you to reflect on the ways that you use your money, especially as you, you have your eye to your Christmas list, especially as you, you think about the, the things that you buy. Let's reflect uh, together uh, as we go to the Lord and, and con private confession of sin and then corporate confession of sin.
Our Lord and God, we confess to you that we have indeed fallen short of your holy law. Lord, even in the garden, you called us, called us to be good stewards of the creation that you had, that you had made. And Lord, instead of, instead of honoring and respecting the, the, the world that you made, Lord, we, we took and we used for ourselves. We, we stole that we might, that we might elevate ourselves, Lord, in taking from, from the tree. Lord, from the beginning, we have had hearts that, that have stolen in your creation, Lord. Very often, Lord, it may not be, it may not be against a, a brother or sister, against a neighbor, Lord, but we, we do not honor this command in the ways that we steward our money. Lord, it's, it's easy to, to just spend to feel good, to spend money in order to to, to make ourselves look better in other people's eyes. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of our lack of concern for, for how we use our money and how it might reflect on the calling that you've called us to, Lord, to live honestly and well. Lord, to, to care for our neighbor, to give generously, Lord. Help us to see the path of new obedience, Lord. Help us to see the ways that you would call us to live because of what Jesus has done, Lord. That though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, Lord, that we might know the riches of heaven. Help us to live in such a way that, that reflects our true, true treasure is with Christ. And to not grow overly attached to the things of this world, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we have confessed our sin to him, we, we find assurance from him as well. And in Psalm 32, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, let's... Let's stand and sing now in response to the good news that we have heard. His mercy is more.
please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious morning, the crisp temperatures and the sunshine, how it reflects off the crystal of the frost. Lord, it reminds us that your mercies are new every morning for us. We thank you, Lord, for the driveway conversations to come along and support one another to cafe meetings. We know, Lord, that this world isn't all that there is. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and even if we may dwell in the shadow of the cross, we know where our trust and our hope lies. We thank you, Lord, for our pastoral staff, that they do not deviate from the word, adding to or minusing from. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us, too numerous to count, and thank you is not enough. Be with us this morning as we calm our hearts and quiet our minds in the preparation for the word. Thank you, Lord, for the steadfast love, for it never is, for it is always with us. As we're reminded of Psalm 95, to shout glory to the rock of our salvation and to sing praise and music to his name. Be with us as we move forward this week, as you always are, and that the tithes and offerings received will further your kingdom both here and abroad. We give praise and thanks to you this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.
that is beautiful and wonderful. Before we come to God in worship, I want to read one. Before we come to God in prayer, we're ready to worship. I want to read one verse from Psalm 75, verse 1. The psalmist says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. I'm going to give you a little bit of a challenge as you look forward to this Thanksgiving week. This psalm is one of the many psalms in the Old Testament Psalter that talk about giving thanks, recounting the deeds of God. In fact, if you were to ask me where did the Israelites in the Old Testament go wrong, one of the surest indications that they had wandered from God is that they were no longer thankful to Him. And I would ask you, especially if you are a father and a husband in your family, to lead your family in this week between now and Thanksgiving Day in the giving of thanks. Make a list. Ask your kids. Ask those around you, what are you thankful for? What can we praise God for? If you do that, what you're indicating is that all that you have does not belong to you. It belongs to who? It's God's. That's right. It belongs to God. It's not ours. It's His. He's given it to us. We're grateful for it. What happens if we don't cultivate a spirit of thanksgiving is we begin to complain. We grumble. We say to God, why haven't you given me exactly what I want? Why not more? Why not what other people have? So again, let me challenge you, especially if you lead your home, to do what Psalm 75 says, to recount the wondrous deeds of God. We're going to do some of that now. Would you join me in prayer? Father, when we turn to you, when we think about you, we are impressed, first of all, with the very character that you possess. The Bible says that you are a generous God. This world and everything in it belongs to you. There's nothing in it that is not yours. And you have been kind to us in giving us a portion of what you own. The psalmist says, go out and look at the fields. Imagine all that is contained in those fields. Look at the cattle, the psalmist says. The cattle on a thousand hills. Who do those things belong to? And the answer, obviously, is you, Lord. You are the one who's made everything that exists. If it were not for you and your creative power, none of this would be here. The sun that's streaming through the windows, the grass that's on the ground, the beautiful sky and this world in which we live, the animals that we enjoy, the people around us, all of this belongs to you. This is your world, and you've given us the joy of living in it. And we do ask this morning, in fact, we intercede in behalf of each other in a world that encourages us to always seek more and more and more. I'm reminded of a movie that was very popular when I was in college where the main character said, greed is good. It is that spirit that often motivates our culture and we confess often motivates us. We're looking for more and more and more. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people of the God who is the creator, but not always longing for more, but focusing primarily on thankfulness for what you have already given. We mean that in a physical way. We thank you for the ordinary things like food and bodies to eat that food. We thank you for homes to live in, for transportation, for heat and a cold morning. We thank you for conveniences like eyeglasses and contact lenses and water that comes out of our taps and for cell phones and all those things that belong 
to the world, the wonderful world that we live in. Father, instead of always reflecting on what we don't have, teach us to be thankful for what we do and to make our homes as well as our hearts places in which that gratitude is cultivated. And we pray that you would help us if we are especially parents in our home to lead our families to be thankful, deeply, deeply grateful. In addition to these physical gifts that you've given us, you've also given us the blessing of human relationships. We thank you for our families, extended families, for friends, for a church to belong to. Father, you have not only created us to need things that belong to this creation, physical items, but you've also created us to need relationships with others. And we count in our minds those relationships and what great benefit they are to us, and we thank you for them. As you are a God who created us with this need, you are also a God who's fulfilled this need for us. And even though there may be gaps in those relationships and relationships that we are missing, things that we long for, Lord, if we only ever long for things that are not there, we turn into people who grumble. Give us instead hearts that are deeply thankful for what you have already provided in our relationships. And Lord, we even thank you this morning for the providential care that you show us, even if it is not exactly what we would desire. We have a whole list of those who have suffered through various ailments. We can think in our own minds about those who have passed on from this life to the next recently. We can think in our own hearts and our homes about those places where we struggle with sin and the effects of sin. And while we do cry out to you often as we do in this place of worship, may our cries not be louder than our voices of thanksgiving for what you have done. We recognize you are a faithful God. And what you are doing in our lives is not the product simply of a world that is running according to its own course. But you are God over all. What is happening in our lives is happening by your direction. You are leading and guiding the events of our lives for good. And so we look at those things, Lord, even the difficult things. And we say to you, Lord, you are good. You are faithful. Work in us greater thankfulness for what you are doing. In just a moment, we're going to come to your word. And your word represents to us a whole number of other gifts you've given us. Primarily, for those of us who know you, you've given us new life through your Son. It is not only that we enjoy this world and all that it contains, you've promised to give us eternal life in a recreated world where everything is made right, where there is no sin, no death, no tears. We've already sung about that this morning, being gathered around the throne of the Lamb, singing His praise. You've given us this world and all that as well. We are amazed, Lord, and praise you for that new life. Give us the grateful heart of the Apostle Paul who would note that at the beginning of many of his New Testament letters how grateful he is for the work of the Lord and the hearts of those who receive those letters. May we do the same. As we look at our friends and our family members and fellow church members, 
May we mark in them the incredible evidence of the grace of God and make us thankful, Lord. And we add to that your word itself with its glorious truth that helps us to see what truth actually is. Your word says that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we're grateful that we can spend time learning from it, listening to it, learning from it. And we pray that in all of these things, Lord, that you would work that deep gratitude in our hearts. We look forward to Wednesday night. I pray that you would move us to give testimony to the thanksgiving that you, or to the reasons for thanksgiving that you have given in our lives. I know many of us are hesitant to speak openly about our gratitude. But Lord, move us. Because to speak openly is one of the ways that we can testify to the greatness of who you are. So Lord, make that time, that evening, Wednesday night, a time of the outpouring of thankfulness for what we have seen you do. Now give us joy as we come to your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to profit from it. But especially show us the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has not only lived and died, but continues to live in eternity. And by the power of his Spirit is with us always, Jesus said, to the very end of the age, the time in which we live. And so we come with expectation to your word as we come with gratitude. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are turning this morning to John chapter 11. This is the last sermon that I'll be preaching in John for a while until the new year. It's hard to believe, but Christmas time is almost here already, and it is our practice to preach some sermons in anticipation of Christmas. So next Sunday we begin that. But before we do this morning, we're going to turn to John chapter 11 and read the end of the chapter that we started last week, so verses 45 through 57. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Again, I remind you, as I have many times, that that the prophet Isaiah, as well as the New Testament, says all other things pass away. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. This is his enduring word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not, only for the, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of God. The more that we walk through John, the more I am impressed with the brilliance of the way that John presents his case. When I say presents his case, what John does is over and over in the gospel of John make it fully apparent to us that there are very good reasons for us to believe in Jesus Christ alone as the Messiah. And in just the previous few chapters, we've seen Jesus heal a man who was born blind. We've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And now comes this passage. It is a reaction passage. We see this happen every once in a while in the Gospel of John. In fact, these things are skillfully woven into the story that we have in this Gospel. After a number of chapters in which Jesus does amazing things, it's almost like John hits the pause and turns our attention to the question of how the people around Jesus are reacting to him. Are they believing in Jesus? Are they offended by Jesus? Are they uncertain about Jesus? Are they curious about Jesus? And these reactions are not only only descriptive of the people we're finding here in John 11 and previous and future chapters. These moments of pause are meant for us as readers to poke us and to say to you, And to you and to me. And how are we reacting to Jesus? What is our response to what we are reading? What do we say about him? And in this particular passage, we see a couple of reactions to Jesus. And I'm going to describe them as human reactions, the kind of reactions that you might have as well. One of these reactions is given to us very briefly. And I'm going to describe it relatively briefly. The other reaction is far more fulsome. And that reaction is the one that is meant to capture our attention. And I'm going to ask you this morning to dig deeply into your heart to discover whether that might also be your reaction to the Jesus who heals and raises from the dead. So let me begin with the first reaction to Jesus in verse 45. Verse 45 says, as we read in other places, including in chapter 2, verse 23, that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They believed in Jesus. There's a lot of question as we walk forward in the Gospel of John what it means for them to have believed in Jesus. One man who writes about this passage says that it's his conviction that the Jews had their interests tickled, he says, 
with a colorful word by which they watched Jesus do with Lazarus. On the other end of the spectrum, we could say these Jews had genuine faith in Jesus. There certainly were those who believed, who watched what Jesus did, listened to his explanation, and they put their faith entirely in Jesus himself. So if on the one end of the spectrum, they're only curious, that is, they believe it happened, but they're not sure what it says about Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum are those who watch and believe and actually have confidence in Jesus. And what is intended here in verse 45, and the spectrum of what that might mean, is only meant to give us an introduction to what follows. If I can put it this way, John gives us this news that some believed because he will intentionally contrast the reaction of faith wherever it is in the spectrum with those who are not reacting with faith. The reaction of those that we read in the following verses about the Pharisees and the council, what we know as the Sanhedrin. If the first reaction to verse 45 is that some believed, the second reaction we have in verses 46 through 52 is that they do not. And if you look through verses 46 through 52, you will notice there are two steps in the thinking of those men who were called to lead the Jewish nation at this time. There are two steps in their thinking. The first step is this. They begin to think that they need to do something directly about Jesus. They have watched what Jesus is doing. They are impressed along with their fellow countrymen about Jesus. And their assumption is if Jesus continues to gather followers, eventually there will be a political movement that the Romans will perceive as a threat to their power. And if that happens, the Pharisees reason, they will be in trouble. You'll notice the text says they were concerned about themselves and their nation. Why were they concerned about themselves and their nation? It is because they had made an unholy alliance, a little bit of a peace pact with the Romans. The Romans said, we're going to rule this part of our conquered world. And the Jews said, okay, that's fine. Just let us govern in religious things. And so this council, the Sanhedrin, had a limited but real power that the Romans gave to them as long as there were no political threats that happened under their watch. And the first step in their thinking is that Jesus could make problems for them. And if Jesus makes problems, it's not someone else's problem. It's our problem. Because we need to look out for ourselves and for our nation. And so it is an argument for immediate action because they assume the Romans would view Jesus as representative of them all. And that will not do. But then as you read their reaction, you see a second step in their thinking. And that second step happens when Caiaphas speaks. I want to introduce him to you for just a moment and the group that he represented because it matters in what Caiaphas says. At this point in history, Caiaphas is the leader of the Sanhedrin, known here as the council. This is the highest ruling authority of the Jewish people, although not 
political, as I have noted. The Romans would never have allowed it to be a political council. The Sanhedrin took care of all major administrative and judicial questions in the Jewish life. It was also the place where religious politics were played out. And interestingly, and note this, when we think of Jesus' questions before the high priest in John 18, just before he goes to the cross, if you can fast forward in your mind to that point in Jesus' life, what I want to alert you to is that it's an entirely reasonable and I think very probable that what ends in John 18 actually begins in this passage in John 11. This may be, in fact, a more substantive substantive trial before the Sanhedrin. In John 18, their questions are put to Jesus rather directly. In John chapter 11, they're debating within themselves, how should we think about Jesus? To put it this way, in this passage, the concrete is poured. It is setting. In John 18, it's solid. With that in mind, listen to Caiaphas' argument in verses 49 and 50. What he says to his fellow leaders is that let's separate ourselves from Jesus. Let's isolate him. Let's join forces with the Romans. Instead of viewing Jesus as one of ours, let's tell the Romans he's not one of ours. He's not us. He doesn't represent us. He's not with us. He's someone else's. And if we can isolate Jesus and separate ourselves from him, we might be able to even use the Roman power to put Jesus to death. And then as the old proverb goes, it's not in the best taste, but I'll say it anyway, we kill two birds with one stone. Jesus is put to death, and the Romans are pleased with us. And so verses 53 and 57 say, from this point onward, they sought to put Jesus to death by arresting him. And presumably, the way that they would arrest and put him to death is by turning him over to the Romans. And the Romans viewing Jesus as a political threat. And the Romans putting Jesus to death. I don't know if you've thought about this passage in those terms before. But let me tell you, even though this is a horrible thing to do, it's well thought out. Can I say it's almost genius in its character? These are not men who are unaware of their political circumstance. They are taking into account where they are and what might happen to Jesus, and they're reacting in a very calculated way. Now, with all that in your mind, I want you to step back with me for a moment and scratch below the surface and think about what's happening in this scene. There are two things I want you to consider. The first thing I want you to think about is that, is that the Sanhedrin, and perhaps we as ourselves, 
believe it is possible, and listen to this, we think it's possible to out-strategize God himself. Perhaps that strikes your ears in a very funny way. You've never thought about out-strategizing our God. But would you listen to me for just a moment and consider whether that may actually be something that comes close to your heart? The Sanhedrin listened to Caiaphas because they believed he made sense. That his strategy would work. That whatever Jesus was planning to do was really irrelevant. It was not what Jesus was doing. It was what they were doing. It didn't matter what Jesus was attempting to do. That was not their concern. Rather, they were intending to exert control. To put in place a strategy that would lead to their desired result. It did not matter to them, as incredible as it seems, that Jesus could give sight to the blind. It did not matter to them that he could raise Lazarus from the grave. It did not matter to them that Jesus claimed to be the great shepherd of the people of Israel, the one the prophets foretold, the one who fulfills Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That did not matter to the Sanhedrin. It didn't matter to them. It didn't matter that God was intending through Jesus Christ to bring the greatest transformation of humanity the world has ever known. It did not matter to them. The purposes of God and Jesus Christ were irrelevant in their thinking. It did not matter. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to think about whether or not the same thing can happen to us when we do not consider the the purposes of God in Jesus Christ. If we are tempted likewise to to seek to out-strategize God, let me explain. Again, I'm asking you to walk down a path with me that may be difficult for you to do. So let me illustrate this for you. I remember a man in my early ministry who made it his goal to give his children the very, very best. This man had grown up in poverty and he wanted something better for himself and his family, so he worked like crazy. He was well-respected in his community. People looked at him and were in awe. They wanted to emulate them. If you would have asked young men in this congregation, who would you want to grow up and be like? Many of them would have said, this man. He took risks to pursue his dream. In many ways, he fulfilled the American dream. But he also cut corners sometimes. Until he eventually acquired a lot of land, thousands of acres, and he made a lot of money. By the time I met him, he was in his 50s, and he was a millionaire many, many times over. If you think about his life, you would say he strategized well. He thought through what he was supposed to do, and he did it. His goal was to be successful, and he was And to most people, including me initially, I viewed him as a tremendous 
success. But his children grew up without him. He did not give them an example of honesty. He did not spend time with them, teaching them the word of God. He didn't pray with them. He never asked them, do you know Jesus Christ? Are you following faithfully after him? He did not prioritize life in the church. He came when he was able. And would you be surprised to learn that his children grew up and did not know the Lord? And that a few years after I met him, he was filled with regret. And the parable of the man who had the great harvest, and he built bigger and bigger barns. Remember that parable? And then he died. And the question is put, what do you have now? You've gained the whole world, but you have lost your own soul. He said, that's me. It's not my own soul I've lost. I've lost the souls of my children. I try to out-strategize God. I wanted him to bless me. And he blessed me richly. But one of the most certain ways that you can tell if you're out-strategizing God, if that's your attempt, is this. Listen carefully. Your goal will not be the same as God. That's the fundamental error of the Sanhedrin. They wanted things for themselves, their own power and control of their nation. They did not care about the purposes of God. So their strategy as well designed as it was, was wrong in one very fundamental way. That is, they did not have the purposes of God in mind. And here's what the gospel writer is asking you to consider this morning. As you put into place in your life all those things that you believe will bring you what you're hoping for, Are the purposes of God and Jesus Christ what you're seeking? I've used the example of parents with their children. There are other purposes as well. Be honest with yourself. Your goal is not simply to meet the expectation of a culture. Your goal is to meet the expectation of your God. I tell you again, you can know that you're trying to out-strategize God when your goal is not the same as the God who speaks. But there's a second way that I want you to hear this as well. In fact, there's a subtle way that you can attempt to out-strategize God. And it is this. I want you to remember, if you've been in the church for a while, the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. He is the classic example of a more subtle form of this mistake. I want you to remember one of the most significant events in his life. God had appeared to him. He had come to him and told Abraham that at his his advanced age, he would have a son. And his wife Sarah would give birth to that son. And through that son, the nations of the world would be blessed. But Abraham was old, and his wife was old as well. So instead of waiting on the Lord, trusting in him, being patient on the Lord's timing, 
Abraham had a son through his wife's servant, Hagar. And through that son, all sorts of difficulty were introduced into the life of Abraham, his son Isaac, and their generations that came after. The reason I give you this example of Abraham and Hagar is because in this case, Abraham's purpose was right. It was God's purpose. God did promise to give him a son. But here's where Abraham went wrong, where he attempted to out-strategize God, and that is the means that Abraham used to get there were wrong. And this morning, I want to ask you not only to consider the end of what you're aiming for, but also the means you're using to get there. It's very possible for us to talk ourselves into this kind of action where we tell ourselves and we can justify to ourselves and it may even be right that we're seeking the things of God and yet we are not seeking them in a way through a means that honors that God. That is also, my friend, an attempt to out-strategize your God. Please, Listen to the voice of the Sanhedrin echo through the ages. Listen to it in its brilliance. It turns out their strategy works. Only it had the wrong purpose and they used the wrong means. May they not be true. May those things not be true of your life, my friend. May your purpose as well as the means you use be solidly those purposes and those ends that belong to our God. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say to you this morning. And it's really those last number of verses, verses 54 through 57. Where it says that Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of the wilderness. And then we have the account of the Jews asking at the Passover, when they were going up to the Passover, will Jesus come? Certainly he will come. He's notorious by this time. The crowds know him. They want him to come. But Jesus did not walk openly through the crowds. Why? This may seem like an interesting historical addendum to everything else that happened in this passage. But I want you to note that earlier when Caiaphas says that we should separate ourselves from Jesus and let the Romans do do their work, he was being strategic in his thinking. But the passage says that he was actually foretelling what God was working in history, that Jesus would be put to death for the nation of Israel and for others who had not yet come, that he would not only die for those that he ministered to, he would die for all those who believed in him. The difference between what the Sanhedrin was planning and what God was intending is demonstrated in what Jesus does afterwards. As strange as it might sound, the fact that Jesus did not walk openly among the Jews from this point onward 
is meant to emphasize to us that Jesus is working the plan of God. That in contrast to the Sanhedrin who are strategizing about how to hold on to their own power and to make sure the nation followed them, Jesus is wholeheartedly committed to the plan of God. So that if I could surprise you, hopefully, with the good news about the work of Jesus this morning, if your temptation is to try to out-strategize the God who speaks in the Word of God, either by purpose or by means, here's the good news for you this morning. Would you listen carefully? The good news of this passage is found in the last half dozen verses or so is this. God doesn't need your help. He really doesn't. What these last few verses emphasize is that God is absolutely in control of what's happening. As much as the Sanhedrin believes they've worked out a perfect strategy, later on they actually celebrate it worked out. Jesus dies. Can you imagine Exactly what we planned so much time before worked out exactly like we were hoping. They intended it for evil. Peter says on Pentecost Sunday, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for what? For good. For the saving of many, many souls. I've asked you already to consider your heart in terms of your end and your means. Now let me encourage you in your faith as well. One of the hardest things for me to do is to actually follow God Himself. If you would have asked me at any point in my adult life, Pastor Jeff, do you believe you're called to follow Jesus Christ? I would have said, absolutely. I cannot remember a time in my life where I did not believe that was true. You might have pointed at times in my life to inconsistencies where it didn't look like that, and you would have been right. But there's never been a moment in my life where I would have said to you, I do not believe I should follow after Jesus Christ. I've always had that firm conviction. Here's where the difficulty lies, however, in actually viewing myself as a follower. That my life is not actually my own. That how my life turns out is not a product of whatever decisions I have made. That my life actually belongs to this Jesus who is patiently waiting, walking the plan of God. Until the moment when the Father has determined that Jesus will go to the cross to save you and me. If my challenge to you this morning is to think about the ways in which you try to out-strategize God, my call to faith this morning is this. You can actually trust in Jesus. His, his power, His ability to help you, to care for you, for love you, to love you. As much as you might struggle to believe, His power to do so is greater than anything you might imagine. I think I've noted this before, and I want to note this to you again. There's an old Puritan prayer 
that says, Father, help us to see that the way that you have planned for us is better than the way that we would seek for ourselves. That is the response of faith. To be willing to follow our God, to trust in Him, to see that His ways do not require our strategizing to reach our ends by our means. So the question of the listener of this passage is the same one the Jews ask repeatedly. They ask it three different times in this passage, and I want to ask you that question as well this morning. Listen to it. Chew on it. Talk about it. Make it a question that resonates in your mind through this coming week. And the question is this. What do you think? What do you think? It is not enough for you to listen this morning. To hear the words that I say and say, thank you, pastor, nice sermon. This is a passage that is intended to bring a response. What do you think? Let's bow in prayer. Father, in many ways, this passage challenges us at the deepest at the deepest level in our hearts. Because many of us struggle, as I do, with thinking that our lives are a product of the decisions that we have made. That as much as our mouths might say we believe Jesus Christ is King and Lord, when it comes to the everyday functioning of our lives, we really believe that the decisions that we make are the only decisions that matter. This morning's passage is not a call to indifference or laziness or carelessness, but it is a call to examine how we see our lives before you as God. Are we looking to bring about our own end? Are we looking to bring about your end by our own means? Or are we willing to answer the question, what do you think? By answering, I think that the Jesus who opens the eyes of the blind and raises the dead to life is a Jesus who is fully capable of caring for my life as well. I trust in him. May that be true for every person who's here and for those who listen now and perhaps in some time to come. Father, send your spirit to work that faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, to sing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me.
Amen. After the service is over, there are Sunday school classes for the children. Just a reminder that next Sunday, um, the choir will not be meeting in here as they will be this morning after the service. Instead, there will be a Sunday school lesson on how do we think about Israel today. So please note that. The other thing I would say is, as it was announced, that there will be women in the cry room, which is the mirror glass room just outside of the sanctuary there. There will also be some elders meeting up here in the front to pray with whoever would desire. So please take advantage of that. Now, as you leave worship, go with this blessing. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in his peace. Amen.